Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. I was just seven or eight years old. My favorite cousin, Jenny, came to live with us for a full year from Virginia uh, with my family in West Tennessee while she was finishing up nursing school. And I can still remember uh, when she graduated and the day finally arriving for her to move out. We were all standing together in our big foyer there saying our goodbyes and having recently watched, I can't remember the movie, maybe Home Alone, something like that. I uh, decided I would try out this new farewell send-off that I had learned from the movie. And I, I looked my, my cousin in the eyes, and I sincerely but innocently wished her good riddance. <laughs> Fortunately, before my father could spank me, uh, Jenny kindly explained that good riddance was not just another way of saying good luck, fancier way. Um, this was not one of my finer goodbyes in life. And as we continue our study this morning through the book of Acts, and we come to the end, not only of Paul's missionary journeys here, he's going to wrap up uh, his third and final mission trip in chapter 21 this morning, but we will also be starting really the beginning of the end of the entire book of Acts, because as we'll see, chapters 21 through 28 form sort of one long continuous story detailing Paul's arrest and his various uh, uh, trials, judicial trials, and ultimately led to his extradition to Rome, where he would ultimately be put to death by the emperor Nero around the year 64 AD. And so chapters 20 and 21 here, uh, in many ways, are, are like Paul's farewell tour, as he's going to travel back through all these regions where he has planted churches, saying his final goodbyes. And I believe that Paul has a thing or two, or five, to teach us about what makes for a goodbye, a good goodbye this morning. You know, they say all good things must come to an end. And if you are blessed to live long enough, uh, you will inevitably personally experience that painful truth, the end of an important relationship as a loved one close to you passes away, the end of a, a particularly sweet season of life as God calls you elsewhere and, and you move towns, you have to start all over, or as you launch kids out into the world saying goodbye, I mean, parents, you're going to blink and 18 years will have flown by and you'll be launching them out into the world. Uh, our lives are filled with difficult goodbyes, and yet, as they also say, it's not how you start, but how you finish that really matters. We want to finish strong, and that includes a good goodbye. And so, my hope is that this message this morning will be uh, extremely practical for you, but not merely practical, that it would also be deeply theological as well, because we know that one day, eventually... Everything that you and I see and touch and experience and love in this world will come to an end. <clears throat> Either because we die 
and we say our final goodbye to this world for good, or because the universe itself, we know, will be burned up and dissolved, as Second Peter 3 promises us. Whichever comes first, your death or the universe's when Christ returns, the question for you and me this morning is the same. Will we be ready? Will we be ready to say goodbye to this life, to this world, because we are so confident in both the legacy that we are leaving behind us as well as the future that we're stepping into? So typically this is when I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, but this morning because we're going to be covering so much of the text together, uh, I thought we would just read each individual section as we work our way through, and so I will simply invite you to open with me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your Word. We thank you that it is your inspired, infallible a word, that all scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, that we might be complete, lacking in nothing. And so, Father, I pray that as we open this section of your word now, Acts chapters 20, 21, would you open and illuminate our hearts, our, our, our spiritual eyes, our, our minds, to see, to receive, to understand and, and receive your words just as you inspired their writing 2,000 years ago. And Father, I pray especially for any this morning who might be here and have not yet experienced that all-important illumination of their hearts, that opening of their hearts to the gospel who have not yet turned from sin and turned and trusted in Jesus, would you touch a sinner's heart this morning, transform it, redeem, and even save, rescue a sinner this morning? We know only your word can do that by the power of your spirit, and so that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so there are, as I said, five ingredients in a good goodbye the first is that goodbye should be encouraging. We learn this from Paul's farewell example here in cities of Ephesus and Macedonia. And right off the bat, verses 1 and 2, we read, After the uproar ceased, pause, context here. You remember last week, if you joined us, Paul had sort of ticked off. To put it mildly, these uh, non-Christian uh, silversmiths in the city of Ephesus, he had persuaded many people to trade in their useless idols and worship Jesus instead. Jesus was bad for business, and so they came after him, formed a mob. They wanted to kill Paul, and uh, Paul, of course, wanted to preach to them. Uh, he thought, no, here are 15,000, 20,000 people gathered. I'll go share the gospel. But fortunately, the other disciples convinced him uh, not to enter the arena, to skip town, save his skin, live to fight another day. And uh, he's going to do that here, but not before he has called all the believers together in Ephesus and encouraged them. We read on in verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he'd gone through there, those regions, and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. This was sort of Paul's MO, and whatever 
town he visited, whatever church he was visiting, uh, if he did nothing else, he wanted to bring them encouragement, even in his farewell tour. I remember the night of my high school graduation party, I think I've told this story before, after the ceremony, our whole class took a charter bus uh, to Memphis where the school had rented out this, this swanky ballroom for us in a fancy hotel downtown. We en- enjoyed this gourmet dinner, and then we partied all night till, till midnight with all my best friends, still one of the best nights of my life. But I remember getting home late that night, you know, going in to report and check in with my mom and just sort of collapsing on her bed and in emotion, sobbing and, you know, saying, I'm not ready to say goodbye to high school. I, I, I don't think I'll ever be this happy again. And my mom just kind of gently, kindly hugged me. She encouraged me and said, listen, if you think high school was great, just wait until you get to college. I mean, imagine all the best parts of high school without any of the adult supervision. This is my mom's uh, parting wisdom. Uh, good parent. So. But, but the point is, you know, our, our goodbye should be encouraging. We should send others off uh, with encouragement. And similarly, the flip side to that, then number two, is not only should we be encouraging with our goodbyes, we should also ourselves be encouraged by them as well. We seek to, to leave encouraged about uh, the new season we're walking into. In verses 3 through 6 here, Paul makes his way back through Greece and Macedonia, and we read there in Greece he spent three months, and when there was a plot made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return instead through Macedonia by land. Now you remember Ephesus wasn't the only place where Paul had upset folks. He left an angry mob Uh, behind him the last time he was in the city of Corinth as well, all the way back in chapter 18, his second missionary journey. And apparently upon his return there, now some five years later, uh, his old enemies have resurfaced. But fortunately, Paul discovered their plot. They were uh, apparently going to send an assassin on board alongside him on his return ship home to Antioch, where Paul wouldn't be able to escape. They're out at sea and uh, the, the assassin could kill him. And so uh, Paul decides instead to take the long route home by land through Macedonia instead. And I want to focus in on verses 4 through 6 here, though, in particular, where we read, Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us, Paul and Luke, at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed with them for seven days. Now, Luke is, of course, our author here. He's recording for us Paul's traveling companions. But we know that whenever Paul himself, in his own letters, lists a bunch of names for us, it's almost always to tell us about all the encouragement that those folks have brought him. You think of the conclusion to the book of Romans, Where Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's been my patron. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their necks for my life. Greet Rufus and his mother, who'd been a mother to me as well. We're looking for good uh, boy names right now. Rufus, I think, could be on the short list. I don't know. I'll have to talk to Polly after the service. But uh, Paul's ending, you think of Paul's ending to 1 Corinthians. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. 
Corinthians. They've refreshed my spirit. They've brought me great encouragement, Paul says. And that's the same role that Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, they're all going to play here for him in Acts chapter 20 as they encouraged Paul along what otherwise would certainly be a, a difficult, uh, anxious, uh, emotionally fraught journey back through Macedonians as he's being hunted down by these Corinthian assassins. Uh, saying goodbye is one of the hardest, but paradoxically one of the most special, almost sacred things that I get to do a lot of as a pastor, and we unfortunately do a lot of as a, as a church. You, As you can probably imagine, in a church of some 350 people in a somewhat transient city like St. Louis, it feels like someone is always leaving and it's fitting that the merchants are back in town. Where are they? Over there. The merchants are back in town. I told them I was going to give them a shout out this morning, um, worshiping with us. We, we, of course, said goodbye. Some of you, half the church has only been here for two years. But for those of you old timers, you know we said goodbye to the merchants some two years ago as they headed north to Michigan. And I'll actually be back up there two weeks from now officiating uh, Simon and Abby's wedding uh, as they graduate from Logan and start uh, practice up there and leave us, and they're taking Brandon and Carly with them as well, the Dykstras. Uh, I do have to admit that with the summer we've had here, I can't really blame anybody for moving north to Michigan, but uh, it's, but it, it, nevertheless, it's always hard to say goodbye, isn't it? It's hard to say goodbye, and yet it's good. It can be good and encouraging. I get so much encouragement from these goodbyes as I consider Paul's own farewell address from his second letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. He, he writes, my child, what you've heard from me, entrust now to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. And you just think about the merchants, the Dykstras, the Bokmas, as hard as it is to say goodbye to them, we know that God's plan is to use their separating to multiply the spread of the gospel to, to people and places that otherwise we as a church would, would have no way of, of reaching, of touching. Now through them, the ministry of, of West Hills is, is going to extend and reach a bunch of Michiganders who otherwise, you know, you and I might never cross paths with. This is God's beautiful design of growing his church and in, in multiplying and sending, sending us out. What an encouragement. I think of similarly, you know, we just had one of our last meetings together as a life group this past uh, Wednesday night because in two weeks after sign up Sunday, we're going to be multiplying into two groups now. And Polly and I are going to be taking and starting a whole new life group. I think we've done that seven times now in the seven years that we've been at the church. And it's always hard. It's always hard to say goodbye but it's good because we get to enfold new people into the life of the church, into life-giving community here. And so I encourage you now, uh, even as we make it, try and make this point even more uh, theological, as I promised, just highlight and celebrate with you how encouraged I am personally. I always love taking the opportunity when I can to give a shout out to our elderly saints our senior saints here at West Hills, how encouraged I am by you, in particular how ready so many of you I know are, as I've talked with you in personal conversations, ready to say goodbye to this world. 
uh, because you know where you're headed. And so you can say with confidence, even with excitement, listen, don't cry for me when I'm gone because I sure as heaven, I'm not going to be crying. There's no tears where I'm headed. You know, it's so interesting uh, getting the text message, speaking of Michigan, uh, just a, a couple weeks ago when I was up there on vacation, I got the text message about June Nystrom, who is our, our 97-year-old founding member of this church that she had contracted COVID up there, and um, got that text message while we were vacationing with Polly's uh, family at her grandparents' lake house on Lake Michigan, who were also in their 90s, and I just couldn't help but think about, uh, even as I confessed to June, I was concerned about her health. There was also a bit of relief for me just thinking about what a different phone call that would have been had it come from Polly's grandparents letting us know that they had COVID because they don't know the Lord. They are not ready to say goodbye yet to this world. They are not ready to go meet their maker. June is. June's going to be ready whenever her time comes. She's back home now, by the way. She's doing fine. Just talked to her yesterday. It's going to take a lot more than a little coronavirus to take June Nystrom down. But, you know, whenever, whenever her time finally does come to say goodbye to this world, I am confident that she will be confident and that we will all be celebrating, encouraging, encouraged at her funeral because we know where she's headed. Number three, well, and I should, <laughs> lest we skip too, too quickly over anecdotal, just, just ask you, are you ready? Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Are you ready? Because none of us knows when our time, none of us is guaranteed another day around here. You're not guaranteed, you're not, you're not guaranteed to make it to 97 or to seven. Don't delay. If you don't know the Lord, if you are not at peace, confident, encouraged, excited even, knowing where you're headed. Don't delay. Trust in Jesus today. Number three, and uh, I will be brief on this point uh, to practice what I preach, but our goodbye should be brief. It should be brief. In verses 7 through 12, we read this uh, famous, wonderful story. Uh, on the first day of the week when we the disciples were gathered together in Troas to break bread. Paul was talking with them, intending to depart the next day. Paul knew that this was probably going to be his last visit to Troas. He's going to prophesy just a, a few verses later here in Miletus that he won't see uh, their faces again. And so Paul, Paul knew, and, he, and so he prolonged, Luke says, his speech until midnight. Really drew it out all the way till midnight. Is this And, and the, the, the verb being used for for speaking here and for speech, it's, it's probably a sermon. We think it's probably, this is, you know, they're breaking bread, taking communion. This is like a worship service. And uh, Luke says, you know, he, he prolonged it a little long. Verse 8, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Now Luke's setting the mood for us, getting the picture. There's a reason we don't dim the lights and crank up the heat in here uh, and hold our worship services at midnight. Because I'm not that good of a preacher, <laughs> To, to, to keep your attention. And sure enough, a young man, verse 9, named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Luke is going out of his way here to belabor the point, you know, that, that that's what Paul was doing. He was belaboring the point. Paul, probably the greatest preacher who ever lived, even Paul was 
known every once in a while to drone on a little too long. This is good comfort for, for, for preachers this morning. And being overcome by sleep, we read, Eutychus fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This is every pastor's favorite Bible story because it simultaneously comforts us pastors to know that even Paul, even his sermons put people to sleep at times, but it also warns you, the church, about the dangers of falling asleep in church. And I can tell you, there are a few of you regulars here at West Hills who I sometimes wish that these windows open so I could just sit you right beside it and tell you to, fall, to nap at your own risk. But since I lack the apostolic power to raise you from the dead, uh, that's verse 10 here, Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while. Paul was a talker. All the way until daybreak now, he keeps them up, and so departed. At least now they're just conversing, different verb in Greek, not preaching at them, but now at least he's talking with them as friends. And they took, verse 12, the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. Now, that I think must be putting it mildly, to be not a little comforted to see your friend Eutychus raised from the dead. Now, in, in any other context, someone getting resurrected would uh, be an occasion for front page news. Here, the book of Acts, it's just six tiny verses in a five-point sermon within, couched in a 28-chapter book. It's not even the only resurrection as we, that we've read in our way through, through Acts. And obviously... In the Bible, and I think Luke's brevity, speaking of brevity, I think Luke's brevity on this point serves to drive home the point that even resurrection is not that big of a deal for our omniscient and omnipotent God. But as we return to sort of the main point at hand here, point number three, Luke's emphasis arguably is less on resurrection than it is on the importance of conciseness with our goodbyes being concise, and the consequences of ignoring that wisdom. People can die when you drone on too long in the pulpit. And the very next section here seems to reinforce that point. Paul must have learned his lesson from the mishap in Troas because uh, it seems like he, he, he sort of shifts from dragging things out, dragging his goodbyes out, and now he's, he's sort of a man back on a mission again. As he continues his farewell tour through the rest of Asia, we read verse 13, going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, uh, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him, it's actually quicker to go by land, again, Paul is making haste, when we took him, uh, met him in Assos, we took him on board, went to Mytilene, sailing from there, we came the following day, opposite Chios. And the next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went on to Miletus. Now he's just like cranking through these cities, right? I'm not, I'm not dragging out the goodbyes anymore, for Paul had decided, verse 16, to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. You remember back when he, all he wanted to do was go minister in Asia, 
Remember when he stayed there for almost three years in Ephesus, now he's like, i, I got to get out of here, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Paul's in such a hurry, he's going to sail right past Ephesus, this, this, this place where he gave so much of his life and his heart for three years of ministry, his deepest bond with the church there, but Paul's not going to be caught guilty of lingering once again. He's a man on a mission. Think of my own personal examples of this. You know, I've shared with many of you how difficult my time, our time in Nashville was, my time at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and how saying goodbye to that season of life was not difficult at all. That time I said good riddance and I meant it. Uh, but you think about even, even for the painful goodbyes in your life, I think there's, there's wisdom here and in Scripture's point that we ought to be brief whenever possible. Just rip the Band-Aid off. You know, there's, there's nothing more awkward, is there, than those two weeks after you turn in your two weeks notice at work. I don't care whether you loved the job, hated the job. You just want to move on. No one likes a lame duck. But if I could just, again, turn down and offer a brief, perhaps spiritual application of this point to tie it back to thinking about your final goodbye, final goodbye, whenever I'm asked to pray for someone who's in the process of dying. The next question I ask is always, are they a believer? Because I need to know how, how I'm going to pray for that person. If they're not a believer, then I'm going to pray that their death would be as painful and as slowly drawn out as necessary in order to break them and bring them to the end of themselves and force them to cry out to God for mercy. That their suffering might show them just how hopeless this world really is where they've spent all of their lives living for, all of their hope in this life, how hopeless it is and how much they they better pray that there is another world, a better world to come. And if there is that God might convict them of just how helpless they are of getting there on their own without Christ's help. That is my prayer for the dying unbeliever, that God would break them and take as long as he needs, drag it out to do it. But oh, what a comfort when we get to pray for dying saints. Because we get to pray that God would hasten their homecoming. Again, we know, have full confidence where they're going, that there will be no tears, no more brokenness, no more sin. Lord, take them quickly. Hasten their homecoming to you. Number four, when we say goodbye, we think about Tying up loose ends, we ought to strive to be at peace. Now, Paul's words here in verses 18 through 28 to the Ephesian elders are some of the most important that we find anywhere in all of Scripture on the topic of what it means to be a leader in the church. Think of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, and Acts 20. Those, those are the, pa- the big passages. And so if you're a leader here at West Hills, an elder, a deacon, a life group leader, or you aspire to be one one day, as I hope many of you do, Paul's exhortation here, I hope, will be familiar to you. And we could easily just camp out, spend a whole sermon here, 
I wasn't hastening to get through the book of Acts and be brief, we would camp out. And maybe I pray one day I'll get to come back, do a whole 12 characteristics of a godly leader, and zoom in more narrowly on on Paul's exhortations here at the end of chapter 20. But I think we can also understand this passage as a continuation of the theme that we've already been on this morning of goodbyes, a good goodbye. This is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And in it, he's going to model for us what it looks like to be at peace with your goodbye, with your God-ordained departure. You want to be at peace when it's time to move on. But to do that, you've got to be at peace both with the past and with the legacy you're leaving behind, as well as with the future and this new season of life that God is moving you into, whatever it might be. And so Paul is going to alternate here. It it might get a little difficult. You're going to have to not fall asleep uh, to follow along. We're going to bounce back and forth. Paul alternates his train of thought between uh, subpoints 4A and subpoints 4B in your bulletins between the past and the future, making peace with the past, uh, coming to peace with the future. So, for starters, verses 17 through 21, to be at peace with the past, you must be committed to serving God's will. Paul declares to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered, God, what is your will for my life? Here's your answer. Seven things. Now, regardless of whatever his specific will might be for you in any given situation, this is his general will for all of us as his children, as believers. Seven things. Paul exhorts his churches, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, how did, what did it look like for Paul to imitate Christ? Here are the seven ways Paul imitated Christ for three years in Ephesus. Number one, he was relational. He said, I lived among you. You know me. He says, you know me. You've seen my example of Christ-like leadership. Paul will say elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians, I share with you not only the gospel, but my own life, my heart. You have my heart. You know, he says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians, when he's listing all his persecutions, his beatings, his shipwrecks, all of it, he says, and worst of all, what is my anxiety for the churches, for my, my spiritual children? That's what really keeps me up at night, is concern for the church because he's relational. He's, he cares for them. Paul, number two, that requires humility. Paul was humble. He says, I serve the Lord with all humility. Remember his exhortation to the church in Philippi, uh, famous Philippians 2, have this mindset uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in all things, consider others as more important than yourself, like Christ did, who stepped off his throne in heaven, emptied himself to come and die for us. Paul did that for them. He was humble. He was empathetic. Number three, he says, I served you with tears, with tears of joy when you were on life's mountains and with tears of brokenheartedness when you were in life's valleys. Paul didn't just lead from, you know, his ivory tower and, well, that, that must be really hard what you're going through. He was with 
his people and he cared for them. He, 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 he felt with them. Paul, number four, was steadfast. He says, I served you despite trials that happened to me, the Jews plotting against me. He says, they didn't deter me from remaining committed to this selfless ministry to you in Ephesus. Number five, he was bold. He said, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you God's word. He said, I I was too zealous for you, for your sanctification, for your discipleship, for your growth in godliness. And that brings us to number six. He was bold in his edification. He was edifying of them. He says, I declared anything that was profitable, whether in public or in private, on Sundays, or I came to your houses to check in on you, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, in, in any case and in every case, my singular aim as a, as a leader in the church was to build you up in the faith, to edify you and build you up, which brings us to number seven. How, does, how did he do it? Paul was gospel-centered. He was gospel-centered. What was the heart of all of Paul's instruction and his exhortation, Paul's core message all throughout? It was the gospel. He says, repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. That was, Paul was a one-hit wonder. That was just his, his on repeat for three years in Ephesus as he's training up disciples and sending them out all over Asia, the same gospel that saves them is the same gospel that sanctifies them. He was gospel-centered through and through. And so now Paul shifts gears in verse 22. And whereas he was recapping the past, now he's going to consider the future and look ahead. And he says in verse 22, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, Almost like enslaved, imprisoned. I can do no other than to follow the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me in Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me. All I do know is that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Count it all as rubbish, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul has not only served God's will in the past, but now he's committing himself to following God's will into his future as well. He is following, he says, God's leading through the Holy Spirit, despite not knowing where it's going to take him. All he does know is that it's, it's not going to be good, physically speaking. He's going to be in prison. He's going to be beaten. He's going to suffer for the faith. But he says, all that matters to me now is being obedient to the Lord by preaching the gospel as long as God gives me the opportunity to bear witness to, to, to the amazing news of what he's done for me, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. As long as I get to preach that, I, I don't even care about the consequences. Come with me. And so now he flips back. He's going he's gonna to review the past again, verses 26 and 27. Past, future, past, future, past. 
verses 26 to 27, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Translation, anyone in Ephesus who still has not repented and trusted in Jesus after my nearly three years of passionate ministry there, pouring my life out, pouring the gospel into you for three years, at this point, their blood is on their own head. I'm innocent. Why? He says, because I declared the whole counsel of God to you. Whole counsel of God. Paul didn't just serve the will of God, he served them the word of God. All of it. The whole counsel. Not, not just the parts that he liked. Not just the parts that squared well with his theological presuppositions. Not just the parts that fit conveniently into the sermon series that Paul had determined to preach. No, the whole council. Paul was an expository preacher because Paul really believed that all scripture, as I prayed already, all scripture, the conquest narratives of Joshua, the imprecatory Psalms, the book of Leviticus, all scripture is God-breathed. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means if there are parts of Scripture that I'm not preaching up here, you're not going to be complete. You won't have the whole counsel of God. Paul said, No, I, I preach the whole thing. Even as he's writing half of it, you know, he's, he's proclaiming the whole counsel to him. And because Paul believed that, God's word was perfect, inspired, infallible, the foundation of his ministry in the past, Paul commended God's word then to the Ephesian elders for their ministry into the future as well. Here's his exhortation to them in verses 28 through 32. As we look back ahead now to the future, he says, I'm sending you out. Here's my final exhortation. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. If I could just make a quick aside to my fellow church leaders this morning. Fellow church leaders, if we are ever tempted to complain about the flock that God has entrusted to us, because let's face it, sheep do smell from time to time. Some of y'all need a bath spiritually this morning. May we also remember that these are also sheep who Christ died for. You know, they say that a thing is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it, right? You've heard that? That means God determined your worth if you were in Christ this morning because he was willing to pay the highest price of all, the perfect and precious blood of his son Jesus for you. If you are in Christ this morning, that is your value. That is your worth. Church leaders, may we not forget it as we shepherd these broken but beautiful, invaluable sheep at West Hills. We continue on, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, after themselves, false teachers, after them, their own selfish gain. 
He says, therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God, here it is, and to the word of his grace. To God's word, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. To make you complete, lacking in nothing, including eternal life. How do you get it? How do you get the assurance of eternal life? How do you get the building up, the sanctification, the continued growth in the faith and godliness? How, do you, how, do you, how are you going to pay careful attention to yourself? How do you examine your own life and know whether you're, you're actually following God's will or not? How are you going to pay attention to the flock if you're a leader? How are you going to care for them, value them, protect them from the wolves, even wolves from inside the church? We may have some wolves in sheep's clothing, even here this morning. How are we going to know the difference between a wolf and a sheep? How are we going to protect the sheep from the wolves? How are we going to know how to deal with the wolves when they come after the sheep? How are we going to do any of this? Paul says there's only one way. I commend you to God and to his word, the word of his grace. This doesn't change. His word doesn't change. It's like we sang already this morning. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus said, Matthew 7, look, I'm the rock. Anyone who builds your life, your foundation on me and on my words, on my words, you're building on the rock. But you build on anything else, and it's sinking sand. It changes with the times. Stay relevant. No, Paul says, if we're going to stay in the center of God's will, we must stay in the center of God's word. And so, Paul says, that's what I commend you to, to God's word. Last pairing here, Paul shifts back again now to review his resume with them, his time with them. They're shared past together in verses 33 through 35. He says, remember, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands of mine, my own hands, ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. He says, in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's what it means to be a godly leader, a Christ-like leader. Not just God's will, not just God's word, but Paul served in God's way as well. See, it's possible, it's possible to obey God for the wrong reasons, with impure, impure motives. It's possible even to preach. I mean, he warns us about the wolves. It's possible to lead and to preach the Bible with ulterior motives. But Paul declares, not me. I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. I serve the Lord the right way, God's way, not for selfish gain, without coveting. As a matter of fact, Paul says, I, I work bivocationally, you remember, as a tent maker in order to support my own gospel ministry and to follow in the footsteps of my Savior, Jesus, the carpenter rabbi, who said, look, I'm, I'm not here to be served. To say, everybody lay down. I came to serve you and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. Paul says, that is, is my humble example that I've tried to set for you in Ephesus. 
Christ-like selfless service. And in the same way now, Paul commends that same kind of service to them to lead the same way. And he bids them farewell, and, and Paul knows he can head confidently on to Jerusalem, come what may, in his future, because he, he knows that he is still following God's way and doing it. Consider verses 36 through 38 here, the ending of this, this beautiful section. Luke says this, And when he had said these things, Paul knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Don't you love how real the Bible is? how real its characters are. This is not the dispassionate mysticism of Hinduism. This is not the cold intellectualism of scientific materialism. The Bible is full of real people with real emotions, dealing with real struggles in this real world, just like you and me. It's full of weeping and sorrow and grieving over losses. The Bible Bible doesn't commend, you know, just stiff upper lip stoicism to us, you know, oh, it's just goodbye, you know, move on. It's, it's, it's real, it's emotional, it's I've shared my life with you, this hurts to say goodbye, and yet it's simultaneously full here of godly example and exhortation for us amidst all of the heart-wrenching goodbye here. Please don't miss how Paul follows God's way even in the act of saying goodbye. You know, it, it just struck me, rereading it this week, our mission statement, here at West Hills, in a nutshell, is we exist to glorify God by growing toward him in discipleship, by living with one another in Christian community, and by serving others with the good news of Jesus. Discipleship, community, mission. That's, that's why we exist as a church, to glorify God in those three ways. But look at how Paul models all three of them here in his goodbye to the Ephesian elders even the way in which he departs and says goodbye models God's way of ministry. He prays for them, discipleship. He weeps with them and embraces them, community, and yet he still gets on the boat and he leaves them because he knows he's still got work to do, missions. So to recap, I mean, there's so much more we could say here and, and squeeze out of these 20 verses but I, I want to start to wrap up. How do you make sure that you're at peace when your time comes to say goodbye, to be at peace with the past and the legacy you're leaving? You have to be able to look back and say, I know I served God's will in accordance with God's word, all in God's way. My, my method, my motive, my manner, all of them were serving God. And then to be at peace with your future, and where you're headed, where God's leading you, you need to know that you're following God's will, his spirit's leading, that you're doing so in alignment with his word, not just what I feel like God's telling me, but like what he's telling, in alignment with his word, and that you're doing it in God's way, all for his glory as a missional communal disciple. Again, so much more we could say, but to conclude, point number five, last hallmark of a good goodbye. Paul teaches us that our goodbyes should be resolute. In Tyre and Caesarea, chapter 21 now, 
Our goodbyes should be resolute, determined, unflinching. When he had parted from them and set sail, we came, Paul, Luke, and the gang, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us as we were out until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach once again we prayed and said farewell to one another more hugging kissing crying then we went on board the ship and they returned home we, we read on verse 7 second sort of anecdote here mirrors the first when we had finished the voyage from tyre we arrived at ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day then on the next day we departed and came to caesarea and we entered the house of philip the evangelist who was one of the seven, the seven original deacons from all the way back in Acts chapter 6, you may recall. And we stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there again urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. And here's a question for us to consider in closing. Was Paul really even supposed to go to Jerusalem? A lot of commentators say no. They say Paul made a mistake in going to Jerusalem and ignoring the warnings of his friends and prophets here. After all, there's nothing to suggest they were false prophets. They were getting false prophecies. As a matter of fact, verse 4 plainly stated, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Not, you know, thinking they were speaking in the Spirit. It was through the Spirit. The Spirit had told him to warn Paul. Others, on the other hand, will say, well, wait a minute. If we flip back to chapter 20... Paul said, I'm constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So who's right? You know, who, who, who you know, this invokes jokes about, you know, the, the, the Christians who are dating, and one says, you know, God told me to marry you. The other says, uh, well, God told me, you know. Who, who's right? Who's speaking in the Spirit here? Well, I want to suggest to you that perhaps this is exactly what God has orchestrated, that Spirit was constraining Paul to go to Jerusalem, even as it was inspiring others to warn Paul, even against going to Jerusalem, in order to test Paul's resolve and his faithfulness to God's calling. Is Paul going to be like Jesus, who when he was called to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well the fate that awaited him there, he set his face he set his face to Jerusalem, and he obediently followed all the way up the hill of Calvary. 
Will Paul be like that? Will we be like that this morning? Here's a practical application for you and me. Don't expect that just because God calls you to something, he's going to make it easy for you. Sometimes God opens a door as a sign, as a way of showing us which way to go. Sometimes he closes the door to see if we will trust him enough and be obedient enough to kick in the door. That's what he does for Paul here. Maybe he's doing that in some of your lives this morning. Will you be resolute to obey God's word and his will and his way, come what may? Now, in conclusion, how can we do any of this? How can we be encouraging and encouraged, be at peace, be resolute with goodbyes? No one likes saying goodbye, do they? I mean, how many of you just love change, having to, to leave behind a person, a people, places, things that you've grown accustomed to and grown to love? That's hard. How can we, how can we be at peace and confident about knowing that all good things come to an end? How can you be at peace knowing that your life one day will end? As I said, it may not be when you're 97 plus. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. How can you be prepared and be at peace? I think it's only when we know how the story ends, right? College football season is upon us. I used to get really into football um, back when I was an idolatrous pagan, some of you here. But I, I used to get really into it, and every once in a while, you know, you'd have to take a break to, to actually eat. And so uh, you, you'd, I don't know if we still use TiVo as a verb, but you TiVo the games and uh, DVR them, record them, and go out to, go out to dinner with friends and uh, you know, tell them, don't tell me who won, don't tell me who won. I haven't watched it. I'm recording it at home, but obviously, you know, eventually you always look up and they're showing the, the scores on the screen above the bar and you, you catch a glimpse of it and, you know, you could say, well, that, that, that just ruins it. Now I don't even want, want to watch the game, but not if your team wins, right? If you know that the ending is good, it was a close game, but we pulled it out. Now, how much more excited am I to go home and watch the game? Friends, I want to suggest to you that you can know this morning how the story ends, how the game of life ends. You can have full confidence in saying your final goodbye whenever it comes, tomorrow or 80 years from now. You can have full confidence in knowing there's a great ending and a better place awaiting you if you're in Christ. We know how the story ends, whether, as we sang again this morning, until he returns or calls us home, whichever comes first, here in the power of Christ we stand. If you can stand in Christ this morning, you know how the story ends. Amen.